Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. If you want to learn to better yourself, you want to improve yourself from a business perspective, you want to learn how to create funnels online, you want to know how to trade currency, you want to be a motivational speaker, go to the Najahi Tribe right now. Go check out their courses there because there'll be something there to help educate and inspire you all at a very, very, very cost-effective price. On today's episode of the Spencer Lodge podcast, I smile because of my excitement for having this guest on the show. Italian mafia from New York. That's quite a statement, isn't it, when you think about it? This man was part of one of the five big Italian mafia families in New York back in the 70s. He was raking in between five and eight million dollars a day as an Italian mobster. He was portrayed in the movie Goodfellas, which I'm sure some of you will remember. And he turned his back, and this is the interesting thing, he turned his back on a life of crime to become a devout Christian and motivational speaker. How cool is that? Today's episode is with the awesome Michael Francis. Cue the music. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. Exciting guest, interesting guest, inspiring guest. Check him out. Okay, he's with us right now. Michael Francis, thank you very much for coming on the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Spencer. So right now you're over sunning yourself in sunny California. You're wine tasting, you're enjoying life. I couldn't imagine something nicer than doing that right now. Do you you live a, a blessed life? Do you get to do lots of this kind of stuff all the time? Spencer, I'm probably the most blessed person that, that walked the face of the earth, in my view, because it uh, could have been a lot worse for me. But God has been great through all the struggles and challenges. I have no complaints. Uh, I'm, I'm very blessed. Excellent stuff. Now, look, you, you have if if anyone wants to know anything about understanding the kind of the, the New York Italian crime scene, your, your name comes up all the time. It's incredibly well documented. There's huge amounts of content on social media. There's loads of stuff out there you can read and learn about. And anybody interested in this subject, as soon as I mention your name, they're like, you're kidding me. He's on your show. Okay. But there'll also be an audience out there that won't have heard of you or known anything about you at all. And I'd like just to start just with a few minutes of you explaining a little bit about your past, what you did and what you're known for, and then maybe we can dig a little bit deeper afterwards. Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, back in the uh, 1950s I was born, and um, my dad at that time, Sonny Francis, was the underboss of the Colombo crime family, one of the five New York Mafia La Cosa Nostra families. And my dad was a, a very powerful figure. He was a, a major target of law enforcement. He was kind of like the John Gotti of his day. I'm sure most people know of John. And so I grew up in that environment where my dad was um, always under investigation, always highlighted in the media. Um, And I love my dad. He was a powerful figure in my life, a great father. I actually grew up hating the police because I looked at the police as the enemy and my dad is my hero. So I kind of grew up in that mindset. Uh, You know, I had my dad's associates and friends around us all the time. We went through a lot of this stuff in school. Hey, your dad's a mafia dad, all that kind of stuff. So, there, you know, there was good and bad parts about it. But through it all, I love my dad very much. He didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to go to school and be a doctor. He wanted me the first, to be the first professional in the family. 
And I was on that road uh, until my dad got in some very, very serious trouble. He was indicted several times, uh, three times in the state of New York, very serious crimes, homicide, grand larceny, went to trial all three of those uh, charges and was acquitted. He was found not guilty. Then in 1966, my dad was indicted in federal court for masterminding a nationwide string of bank robberies. He was convicted and in 1967 sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison. 1970, he loses all his appeals. They ship him off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. And I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University in Long Island, gonna be a doctor. But I was devastated when my dad went in because he was 50 when he went in. I figured add 50 on top of that, he'd never come out of prison alive. Uh, Joe Colombo at that time, the boss of our family, he kind of took me under his wing, started to meet a lot of my dad's friends. Uh, one thing, Spencer, my dad always told me, he said, uh, Mike, I'm innocent of this crime. The government framed me. I'm not a bank robber. And I believed him. My dad never lied to me. Uh, and I knew he had beaten three other cases. So I said, this is just another, uh, you know, another bad case that they happened to, to win at that time. So I said, Dad, you know, I got to help you out. You're going to die in here if we don't do something to overturn this conviction. And it was during a meeting in uh, Leavenworth Penitentiary in the visiting room when he said to me, son, if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. So he, at that point in time, proposed me uh, for membership in that life, and meaning that he had to send a message downtown. And he said, I want my son straightened out. That's the term we use. So he vouched for me, said, I have what it takes. Um, at that point in time, I was a recruit for a number of years where I had to prove myself worthy to become a, a member of that life. And then in 1975, on uh, October 31st, Halloween night here in the States, I, uh, I took an oath and became a made member of uh, the Colombo family. And uh, that was in 75. And, um, you know, without uh, saying too much, you know, I was very committed to be the best possible mob guy I could be. I wanted to get my dad out of prison. I did get him out on parole after 10 years. Uh, unfortunately, he kept going back on violations. But aside from that, you know, I was fortunate in that I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. And I went on to make a very significant amount of money in both legal and illegal activities. And, um, you know, at one point in time, I think the thing that I'm known for, Spencer, is I helped create a scheme to, to uh, defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. At the height of my operation that I ran for about eight years, along with the Russian mobs that I brought into this deal, uh, we were pulling down uh, five to $8 million a week in illegal tax money that we were defrauding the government. We, we were selling over a half a billion gallons of gas a month, taking down 20 to 30 to 40 cents a gallon, depending upon uh, you know, the deals we made. So I had my own jet, helicopter, uh, own jet uh, plane. I had a helicopter, I had houses all over the country. And um, I had a couple of automobile dealerships. I, was, I had various business uh, enterprises at that time. And uh, as a result, I became a major target myself of law enforcement and ended up uh, being arrested 17 or 18 times. I had seven indictments, uh, two federal racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani. And um, I kept beating these cases. I went to trial five times and was acquitted each time. But then for various reasons, which I believe we'll get into, I decided to take a plea on this whole gasoline case. Uh, I took a 10-year prison sentence. I pled to racketeering. 10-year prison sentence. I had a $15 million restitution. And um, I went off to do my time. I did eight years on that 10. And it was during that time that uh, life really changed for me. I made some decisions to walk away from that life. And, and here I am today.
So that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. Okay, thank you very much for that. Gosh, here we go. Where do I start with that? Um, you're a little boy. Okay, this is a, you're a bit older than me, so I think you're, you're 69, aren't you? Correct. You're the most handsome 69-year-old man on the bloody planet. I tell you that for nothing. I don't know how you keep... I want, an, I want, I want your doctor. I want your t- regime. I want your treatments. I want what lotions you use. I want it all. <laughs> I'll tell you what the secret is. You know, my dad died in 103 this past year. He was 103 years old. He wow. did 40 years in prison. Uh, but he looked like he was in his 70s. And I said, you know, Dad, what's the secret? Well, number one, I must have good genes. But secondly, he said, we don't count the prison time. He said, that's like, uh, you know, so he says, I don't count that 40 years. And uh, Love no, it. <laughs> excellent stuff. So but the thing that I'm interested in uh, at the beginning of this journey is the thing about being a med student, because that that's very unusual. We have, first of all, you know this, the, the, the world has this stereotype of what the, the, the whole mafia thing is, the British Goodfellas, whether it's Blooming Godfather, all that kind of stuff. It's been sensationalized so much. We all associate it with crime, guns, drugs, uh, money laundering, and all of these kind of like not so nice types of crimes. And so for me, having a dad that wanted you to go to med school seemed, it seems kind of out of place, which you've, you've suggested it is. Um, but can you be honest about this for a second? Did you really enjoy medicine and studying it? Was it something that you were passionate about? You know, Spencer, I'm glad you asked me that. I don't think I've ever been asked that before, but I believe that I was, uh, I was doing it more for my dad and mom than I was for myself. I mean, I had an interest. I was a biology major. I hated chemistry, which was a big part of the, of, uh, I hated it uh, with a passion, but you know, I worked hard at it. Didn't do great at it, I could be honest with you. I was a good biology student, but um, you know, I was interested, if I would have went into the medical field, it would have been a, as a pediatrician, because I love kids and I wanted to help them out. But really, it, it was more my dad and my mom's wishes uh, than it was mine. If, if, I had a, if I had a choice at that age, what I wanted to be, if you would have asked me, I would have wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees. I was a, an athlete. I loved Mickey Mantle. I wasn't that good, but uh, that's what I aspired to be. But, um, you know, so, so if, if you could have chosen, it was baseball. Mum and dad, you know, this is like the, like the kind of Chinese and Indian families that are like, you're going to be an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor. That's, they're, your, they're your choices. So dad says you're going to be a doctor. It's, uh, I liked chemistry and hated biology, so that's interesting. <laughs> chemistry I applaud chemistry. you for that. Chemistry was tough, man, I tell you. <laughs> How mad is that? Um, so you, you, yeah, that's good that you were doing it for your family. So when, when you actually got into this thing and you were made, I was listening to you with Patrick and you were telling him about, you know, the process you go through and, you know, when you're about to speak, I'm like, Oh, this is like joining the Masons. It's almost like there's a, there's a ritual that takes place when you join the Freemasons. Obviously it's a different ritual, but you go in and, uh, you have to agree and you, you know, there's a, there's a blood, uh, uh, what'd you call it? Uh, they cut your finger or whatever it is that you described. Well, I'm going to surprise you now. Uh, I was a Freemason. My dad made me become a Mason because he said the political connections you're going to make are terrific. So I went through that whole process. I hated it. I'll be honest with you, it wasn't for me. Uh, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah, I actually took two oaths. Oh, wow. Okay, that's fascinating. My, 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 I've got a big, big part of my family here in the Freemasonry. Okay. And so, so then, you, you know, you become part of this life. And, and obviously, you've, you've grown up and you've seen bits and pieces going on. You, 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 as a kid, you probably don't know everything that's going on. But, you're, you know, you're not naive as you're a teenager and you're studying and whatnot. You're not, you're not oblivious to what's going on around you, surely. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I knew obviously there was something different with my dad. And, you know, it's, it's funny. 
He never brought into the house what was going on in his world. In the house, we were a family. And you got to understand, when I say my dad was under intense scrutiny, I mean, he was under surveillance from five or six different agencies, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had cars parked around our house. Whenever we would get in a car as a family and go anywhere, we'd have a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. So they followed us to, to, if we went to dinner, they followed us if we went to a ball game. You know, when I was playing, you know, baseball, they would be on the field. I mean, this was, this was different than it is today. Today, everything is very covert. Back then, they wanted you to know you were under surveillance. So, um, and you know, that's why I hated them. They were intruding on our life, harassing our family. That's how I viewed it. You know, I mean, I don't see it that way today, but that's how it was back then. So I obviously knew there was something uh, really going on with my dad, even though he never really talked about it. He didn't open up to me about that life until I became a member. And that's the truth. He was very closed mouth about it. And what was your mom like? My mom was a very strong woman, you know, extremely strong. Uh, you know, she was kind of the opposite of my dad in many ways. My dad was, uh, you know, he wanted to keep every dollar that he ever made and didn't want to spend anything. He was very old school. My mother wanted to spend every dollar that he hadn't made already. So, <laughs> you know, we had a lot of uh, a lot of friction in the house as a result of that. It was funny. But she was a very strong woman. And, uh, you know, look, 33 years without a husband, she had to raise the, all the kids and, uh, she fought for my dad, um, you know, while he was away to try to, uh, you know, get his release. So she was powerful in that way. She was a big influence on our lives also. Who are you more like, your dad or your mom? Uh, I hope my dad. I hope my dad. My mom was, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, she, she was very abrasive. Let's put it that way, you know. But uh, I think I'm a lot more. I, I'll tell you the truth, Spencer. I respected my dad so much. He taught me so many good things that I wanted to be like him, at least, you know, in my manhood, you know, and, uh, you know, the things that he taught me, I brought with me throughout my life and uh, it, it really been beneficial. Okay, so then you join this organization and again, everyone thinks, oh, you must have been, whether it was drug smuggling and whatnot, but you don't, you get into moving petroleum essentially you're in the gas business how long were you part of the organization before you found this opportunity from that guy it was about three years um it was like 78 79 that we really started to you know he came to me and uh the the, the guy that came to me and yeah. brought me this idea a germ of an idea uh was in 1977 and we ran the operation until 85 obviously we blew it up into something big uh, so it was pretty early on because I got straightened out. I took the oath in 1975. So it was pretty early on. Three, the, those three years before this opportunity came along, were you kind of like learning the ropes? Was that what you're doing, serving an apprenticeship really? Well, actually, you served the apprenticeship prior to taking the oath. Okay. So for about two years, you know, I had to prove myself. I had to do whatever I was told to do to prove myself worthy. But during that time, I also had a head for business, and I was trying to make money. Now, early on in my life, I became a target. I mean, I was arrested several times. You know, I had the name and the government and law enforcement came on me right away. So I was under scrutiny from day one and uh, I had a couple of cases. Fortunately, went to trial. I beat them all. Uh, but during that time, I was trying to build my own operation. And, you know, I bought an automobile dealership, a Mazda agency at the time. I had a few other things going. So I was already into understanding how to use that life to benefit me. And uh, that's where my head was. You know, I wanted to earn money. It was, it was important to me. So, so were a lot of people, you, you obviously had that, that business head. Do you think that a lot of people did in that 
kind of arena that you were in? Or do you think that lots of people made bad decisions because of maybe opportunities or, 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 or just coming into cash and being exposed to cash in, in large amounts very quickly? Do you think they made bad decisions? Well, you know, there, there's a, a, a fallacy in that life of thinking and that, you know, once you come into that life, people are handing you money and you become a millionaire, you know, and, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Nobody gives you anything in that life. You have to earn it. And actually, you're the one that has to pay up to the top, to the boss. So, but there's this kind of a separator in your life, in that life. In our family, we had about 115 made guys, guys that took the oath. Out of that 115, maybe 20 or 25 of us were real earners. The other guys were just, you know, they got a job in a union. Maybe they were doing a little bookmaking. Uh, you know, uh, they had a no-show job. Um, and basically, we had to support them in a big way. And I don't mean we were handing them money, but, you know, the, the uh, advantage they had by being part of this family was what helped them. So, um, you know, the guys that were real earners, considered real earners, you know, they left us to earn money because that's what they wanted. And I was in that category. And were you excited by business? Was it something that you thrived on? You know, were you, was it something that, that, that got you out of bed every day? You know, I, I was acquiring businesses and operating them. I wasn't a detail guy. You know, people would say to me all the time, Michael, you did so well, you're a brilliant businessman. And my answer to that is, no, I'm not. I'm not a brilliant businessman because there are things that I don't enjoy doing. My talent, uh, Spencer, I believe, um, was that, number one, I knew how to uh, look at a good deal, and I knew how to separate a good one from a bad one. I had that foresight or that vision. Number two, I knew how to pick the right people and put them in the right place and motivate them so they do the job well for me. So my motto, you know, became do what you do best, delegate the rest, and get the most out of them. And that was my success, you know, picking the right deal, getting the right people to operate, motivating them so that they had loyalty to me and they did the job. And that was the secret to my success. I mean, you know, it wasn't me figuring out every minute detail of the business. It it's interesting it? you say that. That that that's almost word for word what Richard Branson says and does. And uh, because he says, you know, I'm not the details guy. He goes, I just have a, a, an uncanny knack of being able to see an opportunity, and then I have an ability to find really good people and put trust in them to get on and run the businesses. <coughs> so. That's quite similar. And I know it's different worlds, but it's actually very similar. And that's, that's what actually makes a great entrepreneur because we've only got 24 hours in the day. We can't, we can't you know, get any more hours. So we have to work out how we can, can make the best use of our time. And invariably, delegation is the key um, once we're smart and we find opportunities. So you've got, you've got a great understanding of a macro view of a business, haven't you, from that perspective? I, I do. You know, and in my case, I was such an active guy and I had so many guys around me that were responsible to me and I was responsible for that I didn't have an opportunity to micromanage. So not only did I, didn't I not like it, I couldn't do it anyway. So if I didn't have the right people in place, I wouldn't have had any success at all. But I, I was fortunate in that and that's how everything I had kind of grew. And uh, you know, I had my failures, don't get me wrong, um, you know, mistakes that I made, uh, sometimes with people, uh, sometimes it just was mistakes. But you know, I, I don't consider failures um, uh, a drawback. Not if you're a guy that knows that, okay, I lost this one, I'll go on to the next one. I think I learned a lot from, from the mistakes that I made, and that certainly helped me out, you know, even later on in life. 
Okay, let's let's fast forward. Okay, you you've gone through these years of doing this. You've got yourself in trouble. You've gone and done a plea bargain, and guess what? You're going to jail. You've obviously seen a prison before, but you've never been in prison before. Is that correct? Yeah, other than you know overnight in jail till I made bail, um, and of course I visited my father for uh, many 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 years, so I knew it was what it was all about. I had other friends that I visited also. So okay, so. We can all we can all be kind of like um, I've been in jail for 24 hours before and I was terrified. Um, it was the weirdest experience, scariest experience in my life. And uh, I was in the States. I was I'm near Vermont, Burlington or somewhere like that. Anyway, you go into jail for 10 years. You served eight. You know, you go into jail for a long time. It's really, really serious. Your freedom's taken away. You, you can be brazen about it, but. That going to jail must mess with your head, no matter who you are. It's got, it's got to, it's got to impact you psychologically in many ways. So tell me how it was once you settled in. Were you kind of like okay with it, or or, or were you deeply, deeply kind of like affected by it? Well, you know, emotionally, I don't think uh, it impacted me that significantly to where it changed me in any way. Um, it did humble me. I mean, you have to be humble. You know what, you know what it is? I learned something, you know, if you think you're about something in life, like me, I had power, I had position, I had people under me, I had money, I had it all. But my trials told me something, Spencer. You know, when I was indicted by Rudy Giuliani, he told me that uh, it was a big racketeering case. I was a lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. And Rudy told me the day of my arraignment, he said to me, Francis, if I convict you, you're going to get double what your father got. I'm giving you 100 years. And that's the kind of time they were giving mob guys during the 80s. Look it up. I mean, 100 years, 200 years, crazy. And um, I was on trial for several months. Trial goes to the jury. And I'm looking at those jurors. And I'm saying, wow, who's a school teacher? Who's a maintenance guy? You know, who works for the sanitation department? I said, these 12 people that are ordinary citizens, okay, have have the ability to destroy my life, send me to jail for the rest of my life and my whole life is done. That in itself humbled me because I said, you know, we really aren't about something in this life. At any point in time, things can change on a dime. So it really affected me in that way to say, wow, you know, yeah, I got money, I can defend myself, I paid lawyers, but at the end of the day, these people have control over my life. So that's, that impacted me, believe it or not, more than prison and brought me down a, a real level. When I got into jail, obviously I wasn't unfamiliar with it. Um, and I, I, you know, I knew I had a 10 year sentence. There would be a time that I would be released. I was a little fortunate, I'll be honest with you, because I had a big you know, reputation. And when you have a reputation in prison, uh, people are coming up to you all the time. They look up to you. They wanna get in business with you when you get out. They're promoting you all the time. So um, I didn't have it difficult in that regard. And my father, you know, again, wise guy, he said to me, Mike, I'm going to give you a secret uh, going into prison. I said, what's that, Dad? He said, I'm going to give you three words that are going to help you navigate the whole prison time better than anybody else. What's that? He said, remember how to say please, thank you, and excuse me. He said, you bunk into somebody? Excuse me. He said, you want to, uh, you know, pass up somebody on the line to get, you know, the chow line to get with your friends, say, you know, do you mind, please, if, if I cut in front of you, don't just do it. And somebody hands you something, say thank you. He said, because Mike, everybody in prison that never got respect on the street, they want to prove themselves in there. 
He said, so avoid any kind of nonsense. And that was so helpful. And I'll tell you what, I have told that to people that have gone into jail and you have no idea the thanks that they gave me. They said, Mike, this helped me navigate the whole time. So for me, it wasn't, and you got to understand, I spent almost three years in solitary, six by eight cell, 24 seven, me and God. And I was in administrative detention because the government was upset with me. They wanted me to cooperate more. Um, and you know, they said it was for my own protection. Word was all over the street that I was going to get killed when I left the life. So that was very difficult. I'm going to be honest with you. We weren't meant to be solo creatures. We were meant to be social and that could really play on your mind. And I'll tell you, when the lights went out at night, guys, you know, across the cell from me, you heard a lot of bad stuff going on, a lot of moaning and groaning that could really mess you up. And I consider myself so fortunate to have come out of that because three years in that hole is a long time. But, um, you know, other than that, it was just, I, I, every day, all I cared about was a day went by so I can get my freedom. And you know, what worked is that um, when my father went to jail, uh, he was only allowed one visit a month and one three minute phone call a month. And as a result, he lost touch with the family. We didn't rely on him. We didn't think about him. Things happened and, and we loved him. Don't get me wrong, but we had to exist day to day. And I think that was a, a real separator for him and my mom, you know, because look, when you're not seeing somebody and in contact with them and, you know, my brother breaks his leg, my, my mother can't go to my father, we have to deal with this the self. It separated them. And, you know, I was, I was only married a short time to my current wife. Uh, we're married 35 years now, but uh, I went into prison three months after we got married and I didn't want that to happen to us. So all I did every day was all I cared about was the phone call and the visit so I can maintain control of my family. So that's, that's what motivated me every day, just to maintain control of my family, get out and get back and reunited. So, um, you know, as a result of that, I, I think I did good time. You know, I didn't do bad time. I did good time. I made it, I put it to use. Tell me how long you were in prison for before you found your relationship with God. Uh, well, you know, I did five years and then I got out on parole. During that five years, I was a um, half committed Christian. Started reading the Bible. I, you know, I believed to some degree, but I didn't get it all. You know, you got to understand, I'm a guy that's always in control of himself. I can handle anything, so on and so forth. So I didn't understand the concept of, you know, surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. It wasn't until I went into solitary. I was out on parole for 13 months, violated, went back in. That's when they threw me in the hole. And it was during that time, you know, that it was just me and God um, that my faith really started to develop because I searched and I read and I looked and I investigated and I had my wife send me books on every faith. And I really was into it because they had told me at that point, they were, the government was so mad at me. They said, you're never going to get out of prison alive. You'll, uh, you're going to spend the rest of your life, you're going to die in here. And, you know, that brings you closer to reality and closer to if this is the rest of my life, where am I going to go for all of eternity? So it motivated me to, to search. And I would say my faith is based upon evidence. I didn't just all of a sudden wake up and say, okay, you know, God, I'm going to believe in you today. You had to prove it to me. And uh, it was during that time that I became convinced that my faith was real. You said you studied other faiths. I did. What other, what other, which other ones did you study? Uh, Buddhism. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously I was a Catholic, so I got into my Catholic faith a little bit more. 
but I studied Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism. I had books sent to me on everything. And it, it just, a Muslim, you know, Islam. I mean, I had books in there. I read part of the Quran at that time. And, uh, and, and I respected the beliefs of these other people. Don't get me wrong, but Christianity um, just held the most truth for me and gave me the most evidence uh, that my faith was real. And, you know, that only, um, it only extended after I got out of prison. It wasn't only that what I learned in there. It's what I've seen happen in my life and the life of others that have accepted our faith. And it just became more and more real to me. And um, look, I believe it with all my heart. And I, I'll break it down real easy like this. Jesus Christ, if you study the Gospels, in my opinion, was the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. He was the only true man's man. He, um, everything that he said was wise. It was wisdom all the way. Everything he taught, everything he practiced, everything he preached to me was the height of perfection. So I look at it this way. If I emulate or try to emulate Jesus Christ in my life, what's going to happen? It's going to make me a better person all around. I'm going to be a better father, better husband, better person to people in the community. If I'm a boss, I'm going to be better with my employees. If I'm an employee, I'm going to treat my boss better. I'm going to give an honest day's pay. Everybody's going to benefit by knowing me because I tried to emulate the greatest man that ever lived. And when I die, well, if he's not the savior of the world, well, I'm dead anyway. So what did I have to lose? But throughout my life, I benefited and everybody else benefited around me. And this whole world would benefit okay, by trying to emulate the greatest man that ever lived. So to me, it's just, it's a sense of reasoning. But then the evidence of the fact that he was persecuted, died and rose again from the dead is very powerful. So I have to believe that. And that's what drives me. It's based upon evidence. When you, when you, okay, let's put these two things together. So I think that there's, there's, there's something here. When you were, when you were talking about the jurors, okay, it humbled you and it really made you realize that you weren't necessarily in control in the way that maybe you thought you were because they could have make decisions about your life. You became humble. You go into jail. You're sitting there. You've learned about Jesus and uh, and and the Bible and your faith. So you've already started from a place of being humble. That's why your mind and your heart is opened, I guess, yeah? Oh, yeah. And look, if, if prison doesn't humble you, if being in solitary doesn't humble you, sitting in a, a jumpsuit, uh, you know, to me, I lost 20 pounds when I was in the hole. I, I got uh, tomate poisoning, you know, food poisoning four times. I stopped eating. I would only eat cereal, bananas, anything that was packaged is the only thing that I would eat because I, I got sick so many times. Um, if that doesn't humble you, you know, when they're transporting you, Spencer, you know, they'll take you out at three or four in the morning, you'll be in a t-shirt, they'll take you to a place where it's 30 degrees, you're standing outside, handcuffed and shackled, waiting an hour to get into the prison to be processed, freezing. If this doesn't humble you, what power do you have when you're under that kind of control? Mm -hmm. So I realized in my life, and look, you gotta understand something. I was around some very powerful guys, the boss of my family, very powerful, my dad, very powerful. My dad was a shell of a man when he died. You know, 40 years in prison is going to break you. I don't mean break his spirit, but just break who you are. You just, you can't help it. You understand. I mean, it was, it was so hurtful to me to see where my dad was and to see what happened as a result of all the prison time and everything that happened in his life. So I realized we're really not about something <clears throat> in this life. And if we don't get to a place of humility and understand that your life can turn on a dime, um, then something's wrong. So I think I was well prepared when I got into that hole 
I was well prepared to hear something that would give me, that would make sense to me, that would motivate me to do better in my life and be a better person. Was, was there, was there once, once you were completely connected back again with your faith, with, with you, the, the reality of your faith and the belief in your faith, was that the time that you went, hey, I've got to stop this life? Okay, was it, was it, was it, or was it something that kind of like gradually happened once you started to be connected with your faith again that I've got to get out of it? I don't know how, maybe I should. Tell me what happened around that. Well, no, I made a decision to get out of the life. Uh, it, it was maybe selfish, I, I don't know, but I knew that the life was in trouble. There was no question. That racketeering act um, was devastating. The Bail Reform Act, the Sentencing Reform Act, you know, where you would get. <laughs> Uh, a 10-year sentence and make parole in five under the RICO statute, you get a 50-year sentence and there is no parole. And guys didn't stand up under that. They didn't. You know, a lot of guys in my life turned informants and started, you know, testifying against people. Um, you know, the fear of, of the life was transferred to fear of the government. And that's what happened. That's what destroyed our life. In a nutshell, that was it. The government won in a, in a big way. And I said, look, if I stay in this life, I've already had five indictments, uh, seven indictments. I've been, you know, to trial five times, only a matter of time before I go away for the rest of my life or I get killed because we had wars going on in our family. I said, so what do I want to do? Do I want to be selfish, marry this young girl who I fell in love with and destroy her life, you know, two years later? Or do I want to try to make a break? And so that's what motivated me at first, you know? And uh, it was a very hard decision, Spencer. I mean, I would go to sleep at night uh, leaving the life, I'd wake up saying, no, I can't betray my oath or my dad. So that was the biggest emotional conflict that I had within me because I didn't want to upset or hurt my dad in any way. And I felt like, you know, I was so indoctrinated into that life that I didn't want to betray my oath or, or the guys around me just by walking away, not by doing anything else. You got to understand, I wasn't mad at anybody. I just wanted out of the life because I wanted to preserve my life. My family, you know, my father, mother, brothers and sisters destroyed, devastated because of my dad's involvement in that life. And I don't know any family of any member of that life that hasn't had the same destruction. So it's a destructive life in that way because families get destroyed. So, but then, so it was more for that reason. But then as I became more in my faith, I started to realize that's a bad, I did bad things in that life. And I can't have it both ways. I don't think you can be a Christian and accept the teachings and be the follower of Jesus Christ and be part of that life because you have to do sinful things. It's part of your oath. And you justify it. I justified everything I did. I said, look, you know what? I took an oath. If I violate that oath, I can pay for serious consequences, maybe with my life. The next guy did the same thing. So if we violate the oath, we know what we're up against. So if I had to do something that was sinful, well, I had to do it. So we justified what we did at that point in time. But that, because you justify something, doesn't make it right. It's still sinful, you know? And so I said, I can't have it both ways, one or the other. So let's take the story forward. You come out of prison and you've, you've made some decisions in your life. You move forward. And do you know what the next phase of your life is going to be like? Have you got a plan? Have you created an idea? Or is it literally, I'm out of this, okay, now I'm 
empty or lost or got to find it? What, what, what was the strategy and the plan around that? I had no plan whatsoever when I was released from prison. Understand this. I was, um, you know, I, I was a marked guy on the street. You know, the, the boss of my family took it very personal when I walked away. My dad, I don't want to say disowned me, but he kind of turned his back on me because, you know, he thought I was, and you got to understand, everybody thought I was going to become this major witness and I was going to start testifying against people. The government did me dirty. They put my name on the witness list of a lot of trials of friends of mine that were going on because they were trying to break me and, and get me to testify. So when I came out, I knew I had some very serious struggles and challenges to face because I never caught, uh, sold my former associates short. You know, they, they were very capable guys. So, but I had this entrepreneurial spirit. I said, okay, no problem. I'll get out. I'll create a business. I'll do whatever. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I had moved from New York to California. I figured, Hey, I got to start over. Um, but I didn't have a plan. I can't say, okay, I came out and I'm going to buy this or I'm going to do this or I'm going to start that. It was just, let me get out. Let me get my feet wet. And I was entrepreneurial in that way. So I'll figure out something. That's how I, I looked at it right now. It's just getting out of here. But then, you know, I, I, I believe that God kind of navigated a course for me that I had no idea was coming up, no idea whatsoever, but it turned out to be uh, the greatest blessing, one of the greatest blessings in my life. Now, you've spoken all over the world, or in many countries at least. I see you at the Cambridge Union a few years ago, and, uh, and, and do you enjoy being a speaker? I really do. I, I enjoy it because... Um, my audience relates to me and I think I've been having an impact. I've been doing this for 24 years in, in every kind of venue that you can imagine to every kind of group that you can imagine from corporate America uh, down to people in prison and, you know, in church congregations and major league sports and colleges, you name it, I've been there. And uh, I love the connection with those that are in the audience. That is, uh, I, I, I do the same. So I know exactly what you mean when you've got a thousand people sort of sat in front of you and you have an opportunity to engage with them and connect and inspire them. For me, that's, there's, there's no better feeling than being able to do that, you know, and the gratitude you get and selfishly the gratitude that, that you, you think, you know, I, I'm selfish. I care very much about trying to help others. And people say that's so, that's such a, a giving mentality. And I'm like, you got no idea how selfish that is. There's nothing greater for me than being able to give. I don't get it. There's no way I feel better than when I give and when I try and help people. So I, it's completely selfish, no matter what way you look at it, as far as I'm concerned. You, you, you've done this for, for a long time, but do you, do, what do you consider yourself as now? If someone said to, said to you, what do you do for a living? How would you describe it? Well, you know, I get it, you know, asked that a lot. I mean, I'm a speaker, a public speaker and an author. And uh, well, what's your, what's your uh, goal in all of that? Well, I love to encourage and inspire people, give them hope. You know, for me, it's a lot about giving them hope because people look at me and they say, Mike, if you can turn your life around, if you can get out of the, you know, the mess that you were in and survive and not only survive, but succeed and prosper, then anybody can do it. And that's basically the message when I'm in a church congregation. I said, look, if God can forgive me and give me the ability to go out and do what I want to do, something I never planned on. If you would have said to me, you know, 25 years ago, list the top 10 things that you're going to be doing in your life. This would have been number 100 if it ever existed on the, on the, you know, map. So, um, you, you know, that's what I do. I'm there to inspire people, encourage them. You know, look, people like to hear stories, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, 
Uh, I have found this out, Spencer, all over the world. There is such an intrigue with the mob life. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm in Singapore. I'm speaking to 1,800 people. You got to listen to this. And uh, my host tells me, he said, look, you know, we promised uh, the people that there would be a Q&A after your talk. He said, but Mike, Singaporeans, they don't ask any questions. They're very, you know, polite <laughs> and they're very, you know, so we're going to put a shill in the audience to ask one or two questions. I said, hey, no problem. We'll go home early. Spencer, I was there for two hours. They almost had to chase us out of the venue. But the questions about John Gotti, about where is Jimmy Hoffa buried about, I'm saying, how do these people know all of this? Of course, it's the media, it's the movies, it's entertainment, but there's such an intrigue with this life and I found it all over the world. So the way I look at it, God gave me a platform to where people want to come in the door because the mob guy is there, even if they didn't know my name. 24 years ago, you know, I wasn't as, as well known as I am now, uh, but they would come. Every church service would have their biggest attendance next to Easter because they would come to see the mob guy. It was unbelievable. And I said, God, you are brilliant, man. <laughs> you, you know, we're, you know I, I really learned what the enemy meant for bad. God will turn around and use for his glory. And that's that's exactly what happened in my, in my life. No doubt. You have seen and experienced more than most in this world the way you narrate your life and tell your story and the way you talk about your relationship with God is inspiring. I mean that. And I just want to say, as we run out of time, I just want to say a big, big thank you for you for taking the time to talk to us here in Dubai on the podcast and share your story because you are incredible. Well, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, look, when you're given a second chance, a second opportunity in life, man, you got to you got to take it. And, you know, I, I found out something and I like to leave people with this message. You know, accountability in life is so important. My message to athletes is all the time is you are who you hang out with. Remember that. OK, the people you surround yourself with are going to have a tremendous influence on your life and an impact the people that you're accountable to. You know, when I was in the, in, in the street, I was accountable to my boss. I was accountable to, to my superiors. And, you know, we lived a lifestyle that shouldn't be led. So I did the wrong thing because I was accountable to the wrong thing. When I now became a, a Christian, I'm accountable to God. I'm accountable to my wife. I'm accountable to my children, to people in the church that believe in me. So it motivates you to, to stay straight and to do the right thing. So. I always tell these young people, accountability is everything. Make sure that you become accountable to the people that care about you and want to keep you on the right track. And that's been my story because, look, you know, Spencer, you can take a boy out of Brooklyn, but you can't always take Brooklyn out of the boy. And there's times when my mind, you know, and I revert back in certain situations, but I say, no, 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 I can't do that. I got a wife and kids that expect more from me. I got a God that has a, a certain standard I have to keep. And as you get more in your faith and more in life, uh, it becomes easier to abide by that. So accountability to the right people is everything in life. Fantastic, fantastic. One last thing before we leave. Coronavirus has impacted us all over the world. Various um, behaviors of uh, people coming in and out of lockdown and people believing it. And, you know, there's the, um, the conspiracy theories that exist out there as well. But for as far as I'm concerned, whether there's a conspiracy theory or not, um, it's affecting a huge amount of people's uh, livelihoods. 
um, uh, huge unemployment, businesses going uh, going bust, broke because of this situation. So right now, mindset's a really important thing, you know, having having the right type of mentality at a time when you're challenged like this. And I think Tony Robbins uses a great term and he says, winter is my season. And so meaning that, guess what? We're coming into winter. So this is where you double down and you, and you give it your best because if you can do well at a time like this, you'll do well forever. And so when you think about that and you look at all of the people across the states that are losing their jobs and their companies that are closing and whatnot, what kind of advice would you give to people right now? Well, you know, I tell them, look, you got to stay strong. Stay strong. We've been through a lot of things in this life. I, I will admit uh, 2020 just came in like a hurricane and a monsoon and everything. I mean, here in the States, I'm sure you know what's going on. It was, you know, with COVID, then we had you know, the, the whole Floyd deal and, and the protests, and it's just been devastating to so many people, friends of mine that are losing their businesses and some, you know, it's, it's amazing. Early on, I had never, I re- never really knew anyone that had COVID. Now I'm knowing a lot of people that have it. But fortunately, it seems that the strain, it's, it's hitting younger people and they're, they're uh, you know, dealing with it like they would with the flu. So it hasn't been as devastating, you know, in that way. But um, it has been, look, emotionally, financially to so many people, it's been rough. And I tell them, look, you know, we can't give up. We can't, we have to stay strong. We have to keep moving forward. You know, our leaders, look, I I feel for them. This is something that nobody expected. It's a first time really big deal here in, in our lifetime. And how to deal with it is tough. There's a lot of misinformation out there, but I don't, I don't know that it's planted out there purposely. I think people are trying to find out how to navigate through this thing. So you know, we've got to support our leadership as best we can. And we, we got to pray that this thing turns around. And, you know, I've been doing my best to try to lift people up. And, uh, you know, sometimes those words uh, inspire people. And if they see you acting in that way, they say, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. So that's, that's kind of the way I deal with it. Michael Francis, thank you so much. You are an absolute gem of a human being. It's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you. Like, really, thank you so much. Well, Spencer, I appreciate it. And I hope I get to, uh, to come there, buy you a cup of coffee, have dinner with you one day. Um, you know, I got some things going in Europe next year. So my wife and I are kind of, you know, we may, may uh, just take a little exit detour to, to Dubai and see what everybody's. I've, so many people that have gone there have told me that it's, it's one of the greatest places. You got to see it. So I've been here, look, I've been here 15 years. I will personally be your tour guide when you come. So, yes, please make an yes. effort. I'm going to hold you to it now. You made For that sure. former mob guy. Make sure. <laughs> I won't let you down. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Go enjoy the wine tasting today. I'm sure you're going to have a wonderful day and I'll speak to you again very soon. Thank you. God bless, my friend. Bye-bye now and to you. Okay, so I've done almost 100 episodes of the podcast now, and it's been a fantastic experience, but I have met some really phenomenal people. And you know, every time I meet someone that blows my mind, I think, God, that's the best person ever. And then you meet someone again, and it's just like more and more and more. I learned so much from Michael on the episode today, you know, to, I, I could spend literally a day with him learning all of the stories about the, the mafia, how he was involved with it, and go into lots of detail. I, I literally gave you a snippet today. Um, but also to see how a man goes to jail, realizes his relationship with God is more important to him and his family is more important to him, is the first guy to walk away from the mob, walk away from the family. And his dad was one of the big guys in there. And then turn his back on a life of crime to focus on a life of faith. 
And that for me was really interesting to see. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you've taken some lessons from it. I think that he's a businessman, he's a Christian, he's a motivational speaker, and he's just a season all around good guy, isn't he? You know, he's very likable, as I'm sure we all will think. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do me a favor on iTunes. Leave me a a five-star rating. That'd be great on SoundCloud and Spotify and stuff like that. If you want to leave me some positive comments, I'd really appreciate it. The more people that comment, the more ratings I get, the more this podcast is listened by other people. And so it gets picked up and, you know, other people can benefit from what you just benefited from. So make sure you do that. And until the next episode, enjoy yourself.